All right, you know it's going to be a good day when we go Christmas sermon, Revelation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's appropriate for our joy candle. It still just won't wake up, so if the joy candle ever comes around, we'll, we'll, we'll just celebrate. But no, 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 no. This makes sense. I promise you this makes sense. Peace. We are talking about peace. Now, I've warned you and warned you and warned you, and I will continue to warn you. You do not, you will not, you probably should not have peace with the world. You should have peace in the world, but you will not have peace as long as you walk in Christ with the world. That doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because you should not care if you have peace with the world because you should have peace with God. And that is much more important. And that is, that is the thing that should be the anchor for our peace and our understanding of how we live. But before we get there, airdrop time, because you know you've missed quite a bit in the book of Revelation when we start in chapter 19. So you ready? All right, chapters one through three, there is a vision of Christ, a commissioning of John to write the book, and a letter of comfort to the churches. Simple enough, right? Chapters four and five, a picture of worship in heaven. Chapters six through 11 is judgment with the breaking of the seven seals. And I would argue basically everybody's judged and dies. So there you go. Congratulations. Merry Christmas. Chapters 12 through 14, there is some more judgment going on, but this is more in line with your prophetic works. There is judgment on one side of the coin and there is redemption on the other. So people being saved in the midst of judgment. Chapters 15 and 16, we pour out the seven bowls of judgment. Notice how many times they keep telling you everybody's been judged. So there you go. That's just kind of the the theme of the book here. Chapter 17 and 18, the kingdoms of the world are doomed. And then that ushers you nicely into chapter 19. See, look, that wasn't that easy. Just just pray and go home. We're done, right? We did the whole book. (laughs) Now, how much of sin gets judged by God? All of it. Does that mean we get to leave like some of it in the corner? Mm-mm. Hence the reason why chapter 19 is so important is it is laying the foundation for the judgment, not just of some of the sin, but of all of the sin. And I would encourage you, and I'm, and I'm serious about this. Maybe you don't want to do it at Christmas time, but I don't see why you wouldn't. I'm, I'm weird like that. But I would encourage you to actually read through the book of Revelation slowly and pay attention to the themes and notice what's going on. Because if you do that and you recognize, ooh, 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 you know what? I should do this first. For those of you that were here on Wednesday night when we went through Revelation in our Bible study, I have a trivia question for you. You ready? I, told, I always tell you there'll be a pop quiz on this later. Here it is. What's the purpose of the book of Revelation? I've heard a couple things. I don't think I'm, I've heard quite what I'm looking for. What, we covered this so many times when we went through those chapters. What is the purpose of the book? There, thank you. Encouragement to who? The believers that are reading these letters and reading this this prophecy from John. It is a book of encouragement. Did you notice in the recap of all those chapters how much of the judgment stuff I mentioned? Why would judgment be an encouragement to believers? Because Christian, what should be your biggest war each and every day? It should be against the sin that so easily entangles and the things that are pulling you towards the world and away from God. The fact that Christ is going to judge that sin should be a comfort to you because, again, you will not have peace with the world, but you should, because of the work of Christ, have peace with God. And that is what the culmination of this section talks about. So shall we dive in? Merry Christmas, right? It's Revelation time. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened. You have to stop right there. 
because that's a simple little detail, but a vitally important detail. Why do I say it's a vitally important detail? Well, let's rewind in your New Testament to the book of Acts chapter 1. After he had said these things, this is Jesus, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. This is one of those unintentional comedy moments that I love about the Bible. So Jesus is ascending up, and all the disciples are standing there, and nobody notices the two angels in white shining clothing have arrived because they're so busy staring up. And they said, men of Galilee, and you know everybody went, who are you? So, there you go. Luke just didn't write that part down. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, why is that an important detail? One, you know I love pointing out all the places there is continuity in the Bible. If John is going to see Jesus return, where has Jesus got to come from? He went up, which means he's got to do what? Come back down. So you're seeing a simple little detail that is vitally important. Now, let's actually make sense of why this is so vitally important. If Jesus doesn't return until he comes back down, who does that rule out as being Jesus? Don't think with me for a minute. It should rule out everybody who hasn't done what? Everybody who hasn't come back down. I mean, if, and come back down how? Visibly. Like, does it count if you go like, well, you know, I'm Jesus. Well, did you come back down? Yes, but I had to sneak in, you know, air traffic control and all of that, you know, surface air missiles or something. I had to avoid that. Then who are you not? Hey, here's dumb statements with Michael for today. You ready? Jesus doesn't have to worry about surface air missiles. They're not a problem for him. Okay, there you go. He doesn't have to avoid the airplanes. He doesn't have to get permission from the FAA. When Jesus wants to come back, what does he get to do? He gets to come back. Why? Because he's in charge of that sort of thing. This is, again, why Jesus could tell you things like Matthew 24. There will then be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, what does that mean? Lesson for reading your Bible. Every time you see a behold, stop, pay attention, something important is coming. I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner room, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now this is simple. This is basic. And yet every 20 minutes in this world, what is some nitwit doing? Claiming to be Jesus or claiming to be God or claiming to be some new prophet. And look, how do we know? Well, I've got miracles or I've got signs and I've got wonders. Did you come down out of heaven like a flash of lightning where everybody could see it? Then you're not him. Go away. Why don't we talk like that? Why do people go, this might be it. Look, I mean, you guys laugh. I have a ringtone on my phone from a radio show that made fun of this because there was this whole cult group in South America where this dude claims to be Jesus and he's got a few hundred thousand followers. That's dumb. What's the rule? Don't do dumb things. When is that rule in effect? Just making sure. We have to cover these things, you know, just make sure class rules are always operating under. Didn't your teacher ever do that? You post the class rules. That's what I, oh, I just had a terrible idea. We need to write all the class rules on the wall, don't we? Wouldn't you love to explain to visitors, why does your church wall say don't do dumb things? (laughs) Sorry. Hmm, I'm alone in this church a lot with some paint, you know. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? No. 
I point out the silliness of this because if people are going after the things of the world and even believers are going after the things of the world, it's because who is their authority and what are they trusting in? Themselves. This is why I, I, I made such a big deal about those, those survey questions. Is you have a group of people saying the Bible is the highest authority of what I believe, but it can't tell me what to do then it's not the highest authority for what you believe. Because if you're judging the highest authority, who's the highest authority? You. You're the determiner of right and wrong. Now, Christian, you should think about these things in the world. You should make these judgments according to Matthew 7. You should evaluate things, but you should do that according to what standard? You should do that according to Scripture, the anchor that reveals who Christ is. This is what we saw This is what we've seen, actually, throughout church history. We should have just enough time to do this. We we, we don't have a ton to do today, so it'll be all right. But this is one of those things that gets lost in history because we get bogged down in worldly arguments and in human understandings. But recognize this. Go back to the early church in the book of Acts. Where is the, the measuring stick for who Christ is and what he taught? Where do you go to make sure that what you're teaching about Christ is accurate? If you're in the book of Acts, what do you need to find? You need to find an apostle. That's the standard. They are the witnesses. They're the builders of the church laying the foundations. As Paul talks about, what are you doing? You're building on the foundation that has been laid by the prophets and apostles. And who is that foundation? That is Christ. So where's the arbiter of accuracy on Christian teaching? It's found in the apostles. Now again, can you go grab Peter and double check what you believe? (laughs) Au contraire, mon frère, you can. He has written a book, and you can read it, and we can talk about it, and I will stop talking in this weird accent. (laughs) Sorry, got stuck. You can evaluate and know what Paul taught. You can know what Christ said because the witnesses wrote it down. You have an objective standard that perseveres through the ages. And this was true in the early church. This is one of those things that always gets twisted up because, again, it's that time of year, so I'm sure there'll be one this week if you hunt hard enough. But if you catch like the National Geographic channel or the History Channel or something like that, they'll have their Bible's passage, you know, their Bible specials that they put out at Christmas and Easter time. And my favorite one is always put out something like, well, the, the Bible that is read by Protestants, millions of Protestants the world over, which was codified by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. No, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this worked. That, that's not how that happened. You can actually go back into second and end early first century Christianity. So end of the, the, uh, the 80s and 90s and into the 100s. And you will find writings based on what we call the rule of faith. And the rule of faith is what the early church fathers would write against. Not write against, but write as a backdrop against to understand what was heresy and what was against Christian teaching. What was that rule of faith? Well, that's what becomes codified down the line as the books of your New Testament. It's the apostolic testimony. Since they don't have apostles anymore. They are codifying apostolic testimony by codifying the apostolic writings. How do they know? Because at that point in the early second century, so early 100s, you actually have people coming out of churches pastored by apostles. They knew them. They were there when the apostles planted these churches. They can testify to what was written and whether or not it aligns. And that's why you have early second century books that are thrown out. They're not apostolic. They don't align with apostolic teaching. And that's why you actually had argument for early first and second century books. Things like the, uh, the Shepherd of Hermas was actually almost included in the New Testament. Why? Because what it explains lines up with apostolic teaching. But what does it not have going for it? 
it itself is not apostolic. It can align all at once. If it's not apostolic, no New Testament for you. You are cast out. It's useful. Read it. Study it. It'll do you good. But at the same time, it's not apostolic. Therefore, it is not scripture. This is the history that we stand on. This is the hope and the knowledge that we are given. You should evaluate the things of this world. You should evaluate your life in this world. But you should not do it with you as the authority. You should do it with scripture as the authority. And if you can't do that in an area of life, congratulations, you found your idol. Go kill it and have fun. It'll be, it'll be enjoyable. You'll have fun with it. You get to be Billy Crystal at the end. Have fun storming the castle! Only in this case, you actually have a chance. So, we saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Now, that really starts narrowing down the people there, doesn't it? I mean, how many people can that be? You got one guy, right? First John 2. Children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we know who this is. We know where he's coming from. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Now, how many of you had that for Christmas coming back, right? Now, again, I would tell you, if you would like to find confirmation that that is what Jesus is supposed to do when he comes back, I would encourage you to read a prophet. And by that, I mean... Pick your favorite and go with it because you will find that message in pretty much all of them. Always remember, two sides, same coin. You have judgment against sin. You have redemption of God's people. Everywhere when you read prophetic utterances, you have redemption of God's people. Flip the coin over. You know what you're going to have? Judgment against sin. And if you, if you want something specific, I encourage you to do this in Isaiah. Because Isaiah is the one that people get all twisted up because the book is pretty evenly divided. So first, what, 38 chapters, 38, 39 chapters, do not quote me exactly on this one. You, you're, you're in front of your Bible, you can look at it real quick, um, are basically considered the judgment passages. Then there's one chapter, it's either 39 or 40, that is a history chapter, a little historical recap. And then the rest of the book, it's either 40 through 66 or 41 through 66, is almost exclusively about the redemption of God's people. So people love this because it breaks down. There's judgment there's history, and there's redemption. The reason I tell you to read it is pay attention as you read it, and you know what you're going to find scattered throughout all of that judgment in the beginning of the book? Promises of redemption for the people of God. You know what you're going to find scattered about in all of those redemption chapters? Judgment against sin. In order to be reminded that you're being saved, you're being saved from something. When you see the judgment upon sin, there is judgment coming, yes, but God is still redeeming his people. This is one of the reasons you have hope, because you are being redeemed from judgment. Yes, you will have difficulties. Yes, the world is still sinful. Yes, you still struggle and war against it. But at the end of that is peace in the presence of God. It is joy in his salvation because the judgment has been taken away. There is no more penalty. There is no more worry. Therefore, you can war in this world against sin joyously. I mean, that's never been a thing. I mean, does anybody have happy war cries? Hey, we're going to go kill him. Yay. No, that's not how this works. Don't give me that look. I saw that. It's my wife. She's allowed, I guess. You know, she has to tolerate me the rest of the time. So, <laughs> no, war cries aren't supposed to be happy. Yours is. Yours is a joyous cry. You don't need to go to war. You get to go to war. Because what's the alternative, by the way? I always like to remind you of this. D- does the pagan war against his sin? No, why not? 
<laughs> not only does he like it, he doesn't care. You keep telling me it's sin, but this is who I am. Oh, I almost channeled something from modern culture. I better stop it, stop it, stop it. I mean, isn't this the world? No person can be sinful. And this sin is how I identify. And this is who I am. And you need to accept me the way that I am. No. No. If it's evil, you know what we need to do? Kill it. Kill it with fire. Make it gone. And that includes whether or not it's something you really, really like about yourself. I got really bad news for you. Everybody really, really likes some part of their sin life. We all have that little, that little pet that we keep in the corner and, you know, we don't want to get rid of it. You know what you need to do? You need to kill that one too. I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> Sorry. You need to kill that one too. But it's a nice one. No, it isn't. But I really like it. I don't care. Your goal is to recognize that you have peace with God and you will have struggles and difficulties in this world. But rejoice. Christ has overcome the world. So let's continue because this just gets better and better. So verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. So he's got a bunch of crowns, and his eyes look like they are lit up. Imagery is ramping up. Where, pray tell, could we have seen something like this before? I wonder. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel sees a vision, and his body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now, when Daniel saw that, that's not who him in the revelation that he was given. That's the vision of God that he sees to confirm the message that is spoken to him in his revelation. So why is John using similar language to Daniel? Because he's trying to demonstrate who this is. And by the way, this isn't the first time that John has done this. If you rewind to the beginning of Revelation 1, and I've again already encouraged you to read this at home, you will find this. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, and when it, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Which again, if you go back from Revelation 1, go back into your Old Testament, where have you seen imagery like that before? You've seen the Ancient of Days with hair like white snow seated on the throne and the Son of Man coming before him and he's given power and authority. What are you getting a picture of in Daniel? God presenting his authority to a person. Now, you know who that is. Daniel doesn't know who that is. Daniel just knows that that's someone who's been promised. John is intentionally telling you what? Ooh, ooh, ooh. That, that, th this guy, this guy is that guy from Daniel, and that guy from Daniel was God, which means that this guy is God, which means the Christ that you have trusted in is God, which means all of your hopes that have been placed in him are secure. All of the promises that he has granted shall come to pass. Everything that you have worried about, he shall overcome. This is intentional. You are to, you are to know that as you are reading this book, that you are getting a message from God who will confirm these things. His salvation is trustworthy. His judgments are trustworthy. His work is good. John is going to Beat this message throughout this book. It's one of those things you should keep in the back of your head as you read it. And as you are seeing this final work, it is a, is a, is a, a reminder that it is a work that comes from and through the hand of God. So we continue. So he's got a bunch of crowns and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Interesting. 
This is where we get to put a little things together. John can read it. John just can't say it. And why would I say something like that? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I know of such a man, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, who was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. It's Paul talking about his vision of heaven, seeing things that he is just not allowed to repeat, seeing things that are just beyond him. Why? I mean, John's looking at it. John's literate. He's, you know he's literate because he did what? He wrote, a, he wrote a book. He's writing this down. So he can read it. He can write it. He doesn't. Why not? Whose name is it written on again? Upon whom is the name written? Is that the right use of whom? Yes! Sorry. <laughs> I get the who and whom thing messed up so often that when I get it right, I rejoice. Sorry. How many, how many victories in this world do we celebrate? See, even the little baby steps, even the insignificant ones. Upon whom is the name written? God. This is written on God. What do you know about God? We have escapees. <laughs> Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Why that one? Remember big fancy theological terms from the last couple weeks. We have the transcendence of God and we have the imminence of God. So God is near to you. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God is involved in the day-to-day workings of the world. As Isaiah 45 points out, I will gird you though you have not known me. He will function. He will work. He will redeem his people. That is imminence. But you always understand imminence in light of the transcendence of God, that he is beyond you, that he is greater than. Again, my favorite church history lesson on this one, the um, Anselm of Canterbury. It's a name we haven't mentioned in ages. Some of you might remember this. Uh, English, well, technically it would have been, what, 12th century? So technically English priest was writing a proof for God, a way to do apologetics in 12th century England as an understanding of a way that you know that God exists. And this was his simple proof. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Duh. <laughs> and everybody just went, oh, yeah. No, that made no sense. That was Anselm's kind of his point, actually. God is that than which, no matter what demonstrative you would use, that nothing greater can be conceived. So what's the greatest thing you can imagine? God is greater than that. What's the smartest thing you can imagine? God is smarter than that. What is the most powerful thing in existence that you can imagine? God is more powerful than that. So whatever is beyond your understanding, that is the abode of God. It's an argument for the transcendence of God. Now, it's not a good argument for the existence of God, but it's a great argument for the transcendence of God because it helps put into perspective how beyond you he is. What's the most amazingly large thing you can think of? God is bigger than that. The most powerful thing, God is more powerful than that. Which, by the way, just in case, we haven't done this in a while either, but you know that, that dumb question that atheists ask you to make you sound silly? Oh, yeah, well, if God's so omnipotent, can he make a rock so heavy he himself can't lift it? And then you go, um, no, no, he can't. Why not? Because God has infinite power and rocks are finite beings and you can't make finite things infinitely heavy. Therefore, he can pick it up, which means he can't make something he can't pick up. See how that works? Because you can't make a finite thing that is infinitely heavy. That's not how logic works. 
Same thing with the, well, if God's so great, can he make a square circle? No, because a circle isn't square. In order to make a square circle, you'd have to defy logic, you nitwit. All right? And that's exactly how you should answer that question, by the way. Call more people nitwits. It's good for them. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't call people nitwits unless you're related to them. (laughs) Make sure you guys are still paying attention. (laughs) You're like, just wait till the Jehovah's Witnesses show up now. (laughs) If only you had that permission yesterday, right? (laughs) No, don't, don't, don't insult the people. It's not nice. That's why John doesn't get to write it, because it's a lesson about this Christ who is returning. Returning to do what? To redeem his people, to fulfill the judgment that has been promised, is still the God who is beyond us. It's a reminder of who we are and how we relate to him, which is always a good thing to remember. This is why I don't try to get into those arguments about, you know, like, well, do we think about Jesus as near or far? Yes. Do we think of him as friendly or as kingly? Duh. I mean, the end, you always have to try to balance these things. Remember the driving analogy. Where do you drive? In the road, right? So if I put you in a country road with no lanes, where do you drive? Where do you all drive? You know what your answer is. You know what you're You drive in the middle. You drive in the middle until you see someone coming the other way, and then you try to hug the ditch, right? And then you're like, hurry up and go by me so I don't die. Which there are a couple of roads in Virginia where I kid you not, they built them like that. And if you actually get over to the side, you are on an angle. It's very disconcerting to like be leaning on the middle console because the car is on an angle. We, we, we stopped on a road once where I actually stopped and our tires were touching the grass. And I kid you not, Cameron could pet the cow that was in the field. <laughs> That's, I'm like, this isn't a road. This is some farm path that they stuck some blacktop on and called it a road. But Virginia loves to do that in the southeastern part of the state. But anyway, you drive in the middle. Why do you drive in the middle there? Because there are ditches on the side. And what do you like to avoid when you drive? You like to avoid the ditch. Well, when you, Jesus is our friend. Jesus is the king. Jesus is near. Jesus is above us. The answer is yes, you drive in the middle. And when you find yourself drifting too close to one side or the other, what should you do? You should remind yourself of who he is and move back to the center, which is again why I always bring up this is what the world's going to use against you in the next 10 years. Ready for my prediction time? Here we go. I should have gotten one of those Kreskin hats, you know, like, like Johnny Carson used to. Why do I know that? I'm not old enough to have watched Johnny Carson. <laughs> Talk about some things that are just part of culture. But didn't he have that little hat with the little jewel in the front? You know, <laughs> See, I thought so. This is the hammer that is going to be used against you in the next decade is, well, aren't you the forgiving grace people? You just need to forgive people and love them anyway. Yes, 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 yes. We, we are the forgiving grace people, but you have to repent of sin. You have to turn from it. You have to walk in sanctification. You have to actually attempt to go to war against your sin. Like, I'm not saying you have to win every battle, but you at least have to fight, put up an effort. I mean, and I don't mean like those bad 1950s movies where it's like, you brute, you beast, stop it. No, no, no. I don't mean like that kind of fight. I mean like an actual fight, you know, kicking and clawing and biting and, you know, things like that. You know, all the, fight, all the things you're not supposed to do in a real fight. That's what it's supposed to look like in the world. And what they're going to try to do to you is tell you, well, you just need to be more accepting and forgiving and gracious. But that's one of the ditches. Because yes, there is salvation. Yes, there is forgiveness. Yes, there is grace. But there is judgment for sin on the other side. And the danger we're going to face, Christian, is not to whiplash into the other ditch. And we have done that in the past. And when I say we, I mean like 
the American church. We have done that in various points. And that's one of the reasons, if you want to have some fun, do a little reading on the history of the American church over the last 50, 60 years, and you will see different segments of that whiplashing. You will see part of the movement that is, we're just love and grace and forgiveness and we don't have any rules and the antinomian philosophy that props up. And then what will happen in response to that? You'll have this group that, everybody's going to hell and you better repent or burn. And then what will come out of that is you'll try to have another group and they'll sit in the middle for a minute and then they'll just continue. No, no, no. Constantly evaluate, constantly think and remember. Yes, God is near but he is also beyond us. Yes, he has redeemed, but he will also judge sin. Yes, he has promised us a security in his kingdom, but we have difficulties and tribulations in the world. We want to stay in the middle of the road. That is where we have to be. And the minute you find yourself going to one side or the other, congratulations, you found another idol or another sin area. What do you get to do? There you go. Sorry, I'm checking on the candle. It's waking up a little bit. We're getting joyous today. So <laughs> I gotta, I'm going to remember to work on that candle this week. So Let's continue because, speaking of joy, verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Why is that the imagery? Well, Isaiah 63. From that redemption and salvation portion of the book of Isaiah. I have trotted the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. In other words, that redeeming savior of the second half of Isaiah, as he's redeeming his people, what is he doing to sin? He's judging. And he is destroying all sin. You see this in Romans 1. What did Paul tell you was true about this world? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So why is Jesus doing this? Well, Jesus told you he would, John 5. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father who does not honor... He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Again, continuity of Scripture. This is one of the reasons why I tell you people, Christians like to ask the wrong questions because we like to be dramatic. It's just a thing, sorry. Am I being judged by God? Are, are you experiencing this? In that case, the answer is no. Are you worried about being judged by God? If the answer to that is yes, then what you are experiencing is called discipline. You are not being smited, although you might deserve it. You are being pruned. You are being chiseled. You are being fit for the kingdom. There is a difference between discipline and judgment. This is one of those lines we try to teach parents, right? There's a difference between disciplining your child and punishing your child. You know, when you start yelling and, you know, screaming, is that the time to spank them? Probably not. You know, you're just going to hurt your hand. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> That was the one, one advantage and disadvantage of my childhood is I never got like a belt or anything because my father had these meat hooks that he called hands. So he never hurt his hand on me. So <laughs> I am part leather now. No. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. My father used to grab a golf club with an overlapping grip and his both hands would fit an entire golf grip. It's frightening. Like, you know how long a grip on a golf club is? Just imagine two hands like this and the entire grip is now covered. 
It's frightening. It used to grab me. It's like, okay, I'm coming. <laughs> See, I didn't need a belt. I built one into his wrist somewhere. That's not discipline. That's punishment. That's judgment. Christian, you're not under judgment. You're not facing that. You are facing discipline, a la Hebrews 12. You are facing the pruning work of God. And that is one of the reasons why you should rejoice, because for now you've suffered. But there is coming a day when sin will be undone, when sin will be cast away. Unfortunately, we also forget what that day looks like. One of the spurs to our action in the world is the recognition that this is reality. That this is what it looks like. And we speak flippantly. Look, I'm, I'm, we, me, I am part of we when I say we. There are times we're like, I just want Jesus to come back and this to be done with. This is what it looks like. This is what we're saying we're longing for. This is what we say we want to hurry up. There should be a part of us that goes, you know what? Well, I'm, I'm kind of ready for this to be over with. I'm not sure I'm ready for people to get that yet. Again, remembering that we drive in the middle of the road. We don't want to whiplash into either side. So, let's continue. He is, a, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Why? Yeah, sorry, we didn't move yet. Sorry. Why is his name called the Word of God? Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to be empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You're going, yeah, so God speaks and it accomplishes things. We saw that in Genesis 1. What's your point? John 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In other words, you see John building upon what you've seen in the Old Testament. You see the agent of God's accomplishing. This is one of those fun little things. I know you know this, but I like to make sure we... Ah, sorry. I know you know this, but I like to make sure we cover these things as we go. This is replete, especially in the beginning parts of your Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord. There's a reason why there is no more angel of the Lord in the New Testament. Who was the angel of the Lord? Well, he was this person who appeared like a man, but he spoke with the authority of God, and he spoke as if he was God, and he accepted worship, and this is weird. So now putting your New Testament together, who's the angel of the Lord? This is Jesus. Notice how often there is a voice or there's a revelation and how often there's also an appearance, and how often that appearance is the angel of the Lord. One of those things that gets overlooked in Exodus when they're leaving Egypt is there's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and the Lord is in the midst of their camp leading them. That's not the pillar. That's the angel of the Lord. Christ is in the camp. When they do the little judgment scene out in the wilderness, and God says that I will station myself and stand upon the rock, well, who stands upon the rock? That is Jesus. Who's walking in the garden in the cool of the day? It's Jesus. Who's standing overlooking the, the, the ravine with Abraham before heading into Sodom and Gomorrah? This is Jesus. Who's making the actual sacrifice in the garden so that Adam and Eve have clothes upon which they leave, that they're wearing when they leave the garden? This is Jesus. This is what you see throughout your Old Testament. This is one of those things, slow down when you see that. Whenever you see angel of the Lord, go, ooh, that's Jesus. It's important. He's accomplishing the work of God. He is the one who is working in real time. Now, that means we have a double-edged sword here, and that double-edged sword is that you have the word of God both as a person and as what? 
a function. Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, Hebrews 4 is not talking about Jesus. It's talking about scripture. What's the point of scripture? Give me the Sunday school answer. Say it loud. There you go. When, this is the Sunday school answer because if you, get a, if you ever get like a first grade Sunday school class and you ask them a Bible trivia question, they don't know the answer. You know what they're all going to do? Jesus. You're like, all right, who did God appear to in the wilderness? Um, was it Jesus? No, no. Who had the animals in the ark? Uh, was it Jesus? No, no, it wasn't Jesus. That's, that's children's answer. But when it comes to this one, what's the purpose of scripture? Jesus. Jesus is the purpose of Scripture. If you've read your Bible, you got to the end, and you got anywhere other than Christ, you got to the wrong place, retrace your steps, make the left turn at Albuquerque, and start again. It'll be good for you. Oh, some of you aren't paying attention anymore. I've lost you. I've lost you. All right, verse... And the armies which are in heaven... Ooh, this is a new mixed multitude, by the way. See, because if I tell you the armies of heaven, what do you picture? Be honest, what do you picture? You picture angels, Deuteronomy 14. Beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship and serve them. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. You think either heavenly beings as in like the stars in the sky or literally like heavenly beings, you know, the angel with the wings and the whole thing. Um, what's the purpose of the book again? That's the purpose of the Bible book. What's the purpose of Revelation again? Encouragement of... The believers. Well, does it encourage me to know that God's got an army full of angels? Maybe. You know what would encourage me a little bit more? Revelation chapter 7. One of the elders answered saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, that's what you're doing wrong with your sheets. That's why they're not white. There you go. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So when you now see at the end of the book, at the culmination of history, the hosts of heaven, who does that include? Those that God has redeemed. You. Me, and as Edwin McCain once sang, and all of the people, sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I know Becca knows 90s music, and she got that one, so. <laughs> Edwin McCain and the long hair, there you go, sorry. Now, this is where it's going to get fun. I want you to pay attention to this part, because there will be a quiz on this later, okay? Armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, notice there's a period here. That's the end of this sentence, right? One, this is consistent saw in Revelation 7, so the, the description is the same, but let's recap this real quick. So they're an army in heaven, clothed in fine linen, riding on horses. What's missing? An army clothed in fine linen, following on horses. I'm, weapons! Who assembles an army to march into battle and be like, all right, guys, go gnaw their ankles off. You got this. Like, you show up to the battle. What do you want the guy in charge to give you? 
a weapon, uh, something appropriate to the time. So, you know, if you showed up, like you joined the Marine Corps today, when they send you off into battle, they don't be like, all right, we taught you how to wrestle real good. Go get him, killer. <laughs> Our Marine is laughing <laughs> because they gave you what? They gave you a rifle and be like, hey, you see that guy over there? Shoot him. That, the bad guys are that way. The good guys are this way. So you shoot in that direction. That's how this works. There's no weapons. Why are there no weapons? Exodus 14. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I need to be snarkier than that, don't I? (laughs) Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us into Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Okay, there we go. (laughs) Sorry. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation the Lord, which, the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. That's why they don't have any weapons. They don't need any weapons. It's basically the world's largest pep rally. I mean, they're basically just cheerleaders at this point. Yay, go team. Yeah, you got them. You got this. Again, it's like the Israelites at the mountain when God comes down on Sinai and God says, don't come up the mountain and everybody says what? Duh. We're going to go to battle against evil. I'm going to kill everybody while you guys stay here. Duh. (laughs) Good plan. We got this. You got this. Go team, go. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, just like you saw earlier so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. See, we didn't have to do anything because he's got this. By the way, Christian, that's not just true then. That's true now and it was true yesterday and it's going to be true tomorrow that the providential ruling hand of God didn't go, oh, oh my bad, sorry, butterfingers, hang on, I'll, I'll fix that one. No, the sovereign hand of God is in control of all things. He has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. He has not slipped. He has not sneezed and, you know, blinked for a minute and let you figure this out. And by the way, that is also consistent with scripture as well. Things like Psalm 2, which might be my favorite Psalm. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten me, begotten you. Sorry, if I can read. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You're seeing that here. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And that's why the warning was what it was in Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's where the warnings have become. That's also one of my favorite not funny lines that seems a little funny when you think about it in Revelation earlier, because when you get to chapter six in Revelation and the judgment of God is being poured out and the kings and the leaders of the earth are going, oh, mountains fall on us and hide us because the judgment of God and of the lamb has come. And it's like, you're worried about the wrath of the lamb? Like, I've seen lambs. I've never been afraid of one. But it's part of the imagery of the book. Who is the lamb? It's the lamb of God who takes away sin. He's either died for your sin, or you will be judged for that sin. And the wrath has been kindled just as it was promised. You see this again, things like Joel 3. 
Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But... The Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy and and strangers will pass through it no more. Again, two sides, the same coin. What you're seeing here in Revelation, Joel is warning you, there's coming a day when the Lord will roar, when that lion from the tribe of Judah will judge and he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God and yet be a refuge for his people. There's two groups here. You think the group on the other side of Jesus got their weapons together? I think they did. Because if I know somebody's coming to get me, you know what I'm going to do? Everything I can. What can they do? Nothing. Again, you see the judgment of God going forth, and yet you see what? A refuge for his people. Because as long as we're on this side, and the guy on the horse with the sash and the name and the eyes of flaming fire is on that side, do you know who's coming to get us? Nobody. Nobody. That battle is over. This is what I've always joked. This is, this is your great battle of Armageddon right here. We're done here. <laughs> it's over. You lose. God wins. Congratulations. Again, Christian, this is what peace with God looks like. It looks like salvation in the midst of judgment. It looks like sanctification in your world, day by day, in the midst of sin and depravity of every manner going along around you, while God is bringing you to a good kingdom. And that's why it finishes with a praise. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why? Because that's who he is. That's always who he has been. Um, I had fun with this this week because I went and looked it up just simply because I'm weird and I enjoy stuff like this. The crescendo of Handel's Messiah. You guys know what I'm talking about? I, I had to suffer through it a while back because Cameron actually sang in a choir that, that did it and she made me go. It's, it's actually not bad, but after a while, I'm a little ADHD, so you can't imagine me sitting still for two hours listening to music. I'm just like, oh, I'm paying attention. Honest, I'm paying attention. <laughs> now, when I tell you that, you know what everybody's brain automatically did, right? You, you know what you said in your head. You know what you heard in your, in your head. You heard those soprano voices that you can barely understand singing what? Hallelujah. See, I don't have a high register anymore. I've had too many sinus infections, so I don't, I don't have my falsetto any longer. It has gone away. But remember, this is a lesson for Handel's Messiah, and it's also a lesson for life in general. Whenever you see a group of women squealing loudly that you can't understand, pay attention. There are some men somewhere explaining to you the important things. <laughs> okay, some of you giggled. <laughs> and some of you gave me dirty looks, which means yes. No, I'm kidding. But everybody knows the hallelujah part, and you know what we all miss? The actual descriptions that are going on in the midst of that. Why are they rejoicing? Why are they singing hallelujah? For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Yes, they dropped King Jimmy. If you pay attention to the baseline, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. I went down on the last note, not well, but I went down on the last note. Cameron's over there giving me direction. See what I got to live with? She did. She's over there going. (laughs) 
the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's why we're rejoicing. And then, of course, the best part is, what's the declaration that's repeated over and over and over again? He is king of kings forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And lord of lords forever, forever, hallelujah. There you go, there's my high notes. <laughs> and he shall reign forever and ever. I encourage you, it's four minutes long. Go look it up. There's a couple great versions on YouTube. Um, four minutes long, but actually turn the captions on if you need to, but pay attention to not just the, the whistle notes that the Sopranos are hitting that you can't understand, but pay attention to the actual declarations of who Christ is, because it's not just a reminder of that, but it's a reminder of what he's done and why you have peace with God. It's because the King of Kings and Lord of Lords rules and reigns and has conquered and overcome sin and put to death the enemies of his people, and we are there. Therefore, secure in his kingdom. So you can go out and you will not have peace with the world, but you will have peace in the world because you have peace with God. And that is why we rejoice. That's, why, that's where all the Sundays of Advent come together. Why do you have hope? Because it is God who has promised and God who has accomplished. Why, do you, why can you experience love? Because the love of God has been poured out. Why do you rejoice? Because he has redeemed and saved me and he has not forsaken me. And why do you live at peace? because you have peace with God, and it is a peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's pray.